All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another Learning Tech Talks, where we are exploring the intersection of business technology and the human experience. I am looking forward to today's conversation and have been for some time. Uh, I'm talking with Arash Darudi, who is the EVP and General Counsel for Fender, which you may be going learning tech talks, EVP general, where is this going to go? But if you've seen the post leading up to this, we're going to be talking about really what is happening around leadership. And also I'm looking forward to it. We were talking backstage about his perspective on lawyer 3.0, which really translates well to what many organizations are going through right now, which is re-looking at roles and positions and the way work happens in organizations and saying, what does that look like in the future so that we can prepare people for it? So this is going to be a fun conversation. I'm glad that you are done with all that travel so that you were able to join me and have it today, Arash. Most definitely time zone has been corrected and uh, yeah, I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. Is, is the jet lag all out now? You know, Tokyo was is 14 hours ahead, so they're in the future. So imagine flying there, spending a week there and coming back. It, it, it is. You travel to the future. You I were Marty McFly the right there. Just <laughs> you, you bam. <laughs> I have seen, and particularly in Tokyo, which is very futuristic looking anyway, I really did go into the future. Yeah. You woke up in the future. That's awesome. Well, so for folks who don't know you, and especially this is going to be fun because this is expansion, expansion outside just the typical function, a little bit of background on you and your journey to the EVP and general counsel at Fender, like what, what makes you tick? And I've gotten to know you. And by the way, great taste in attire. We continue talking about the fact that every time we reconnect, we both have a flavor for black shirts. Absolutely. Like I said, Henry Ford said, you can have any model T color you want as long as it's black. <laughs> my closet looks like Uncle Fester's wardrobe closet. Um, so, so does mine. And it has <laughs> nothing to do with growing up in a funeral home. No, no, <laughs> no not at all. Um, so uh, I'll, t I'll take you back. Uh, born in Texas, Houston, Texas. My parents were students. They were immigrants from the country of Iran. And in 1974, uh, essentially, a lot of students from Iran would come to the United States, get educated here, get their degrees, and then go back to Iran. Iran was a fantastic country at that point. It still is, but it's different now. Revolution happens in 1979. You had two young students in the United States who were my parents. They had a six-month-old child, which was me. They couldn't go back to Iran. And they... They didn't have work visas, so they couldn't afford to provide for the six-month-old child. Um, they decided to send me to Iran with my grandparents for a period of six months. And I was so a US you went back, but they stayed. Exactly, because I was a U.S. citizen. I was born in the United States with a U.S. passport, mm -hmm. so it's, it's like gold. You can travel the world. Um, I got to Iran. Four months later, all-out war breaks loose between Iran and Iraq. I actually got stuck in Iran for seven years. I didn't see my parents until I was seven years old again. And again, I get this question all the time. Do your parents regret it? Would they do anything differently? My response always is absolutely not. I would not let yeah. them do anything differently. Those experiences of being stuck in Iran, being stuck during the war, finding my way back to the United States through 19 countries is, is what built me as a person. And even to this yeah. day. Um, well, like, the quote I made on yesterday's post preparing for this was Eleanor Roosevelt's quote of like, you don't know how strong it's like a tea bag. You don't know how strong a leader is until you put it in hot water. And I just even reflect on some of my own past experiences that people would go, don't you wish that it had been different? And I go, I mean, would I want to go through it again? Right. But I no, but those things are forged in hardship and you, I, I completely agree. Which is why a lot of times I'm, I'm very not critical, but I, I provide sort of my feedback to a lot of recruiters in every single sector, which is instead of taking a look at just the resume and the LinkedIn profile, take a look at their story. What is their story? Where did they come from? What challenges have they overcome? Because fundamentally it's those Ability to overcome challenges that builds you as a person and ultimately makes you successful as a professional in whatever sort of career you have. So anyway, find my way back to the so United States. You got stuck there. And how did fast forward, how did all that 
You're here in the States, obviously. 100%. I was there during the war. So you had bombings on a regular basis. I remember waking up at 3 a.m. one day and it sounded like the sound of a thousand explosions at one time. We go outside, three houses down, was completely eviscerated. And that was my childhood friend. That was, that was the boy that I would play with. So these are the things wow. that kind of shape you yeah. early on. Near the end of the war, they started to open up the borders so that you could actually go on tourist visas to various countries. So we would go to 19 different countries. To me, okay. for me to get my, my passport, U.S. passport reinstated and get my grandparents a visa so that we could come to the U.S. And we did. Finally, in 1988, through JFK Airport. I'll never forget it. My father <laughs> picked me up. And got me a, a Burger King Whopper, and I never knew a burger could be so big. This is a good country. I, I love it. it. I love that's the memory. JFK and a Whopper. There my you go. God. Doesn't get more American than that. It, it doesn't was, get more American. It doesn't. Than it was that. the size of my head. I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get used to this place. This is good. <laughs> that's so funny. Okay, but so then, so the legal route. What made you end up going? You know, obviously that shaped you in a, in significant ways. Definitely. Did that contribute to the choice to pursue the legal path? I read a book called Barbarians at the Gate. So okay. I was in middle school. And this book was about the leverage buyout, the largest leverage buyout at the time of RJR Nabisco, the company that made uh, Oreo cookies, etc. And I just found another it very American thing. Very much so. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to hit on a lot of these very American things. Today. <laughs> yeah. Just just fell in love with with the action that was involved with all of these deal makers in M&A world. And I just fell in love with it. And KKR was involved and I read everything about them. And so my mentor said, listen, you should probably go to law school and get involved in the M&A world. And I did. I went to law school. Got my degree. Really? Yeah. So middle school? Like at middle school, you had this like an M&A of all things too. That's not, that's a very specific branch of legal Most as definitely. a middle schooler to go. Most definitely. That's what I think that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I would probably say that at the age of seven, I was probably closer to 18, 19 years old just because I, of the. I would imagine that that your childhood experience would age you very quickly. Most definitely. And then also coming into the United States, coming back to the U.S. as an immigrant this time, even though you're born here, was was really fascinating because I faced my share of struggles. You know, I, I, I would be spit on. I would be told to go back to my country. And I would say, this is my country. I was born here. Look, here's the passport yeah. to prove it. So it, I think I, I, my maturity got accelerated. But I had great mentors, fantastic mentors. Well, so I was going to ask you on that because not only the experience you had in your childhood, but even what you just shared there about, right? And I have to imagine... Some of the stuff that, you know, I think of the early 2000s and all these things that you probably experienced no shortage of challenges. Yeah. What, what are some of the things that you did that helped keep you from letting that jade you? Because there are some people that will go through those things and it poisons the well in yeah. some ways. People become very bitter. They become very angry. They become very jaded towards the world. And then there are others who say that experience was terrible. It should not have happened. People should not be treated that way, but I'm not going to let that shape who I am. Or if I do, it's going to shape me to make sure that I influence things in a positive fashion. That is an excellent question. I think it really goes back again to my childhood. Imagine right. being stuck in a different country away from your parents. Imagine that there is a war going on and there's always this instilled sense of hope that one day you're going to reach America, mm. you're going to see your parents again and such. So you always have this internal built-in um, resiliency that you're, you're, you're going to overcome. whatever. This is really bad, but at some point, there's something on the other side of that. 100%. Absolutely. So I think this, this was instilled in me as a child. And throughout my life in the United States, whether it was overcoming discrimination or overcoming any sorts of hatred and such, it was always the same concept, which is resiliency. When you give me obstacles, it only makes me stronger. When you tell me I can't do anything, it only makes me stronger. And I'll keep going and I'll continue going. And I always win. 
because I'm just resilient. And, and that goes back to my, to my childhood. Again, that's why I would never trade anything. I would never trade my childhood. Yeah. Anything. Okay. Okay. No. And that's, I think there's some important lessons in that because that's, while I agree completely that that being formed in your early childhood years, and there's just a lot of things while a very different story that I can relate to in some of that stuff, that is a conscious choice that you have to make. And this ties to some of the leadership discussion that we're having around this is that still is a conscious choice you have to make every time you face that. Absolutely. Because as you go into it, you have a decision to make of, am I going to believe in the hope on the other side of this? And I'm going to endure and push through this and see it as making me better. Or am I going to choose to look at this as the opposite and let it pull me down? And that's, that's not always an easy choice to make. No, no, but if you can overcome it and you can, you can embrace that sort of thought process, you can overcome any challenge. Even as I sit here, I'm overcoming challenges. As I sit here and I speak with you, I'm overcoming unbelievable obstacles. But it's a mindset and I'll overcome it nonetheless. I love it. So you're middle schooler. <laughs> You realize M&A, legal, this is the path for me. As you went down the path of legal, what did that look like as you got into it? Because I have to imagine, I think this very much ties to some of the skills conversations that people are seeing right now where, you know, what you think a job is, may, there may be some truth in what that is, but there also may be some things that you go, that's perceived truth about it, but I actually think there's a better way. So as you kind of went down this path and obviously knew very young what you wanted to do, what was that like going through, you know, your journey going, I mean, obviously you've, you've done quite well in the legal space yes. as well. <laughs> I, I, I think um, the beauty of studying law is really studying what makes America the greatest country on the face of the earth. And then when you take a look at the rule of law that exists in the United States, although, although replicated and mimicked in other countries and such, it still is nothing like it is in the U.S. And, and, and coming from perhaps countries that are much more restrictive on, on many of the freedoms that, that we enjoy here and, and, and the jurisprudence and such, that was something that, that always was interesting to me. Add to it the business aspect. I love the business aspect. And that's where, when I read the book, Barbarians at the Gate, I love the fact that there were these lawyers that were involved in high levels of business and negotiating these massive multi, multi-billion dollar deals. I just found it very sexy. And I, and, and I said, like, this is my route. So my mentor at the time said, listen, my suggestion is undergrad, study something useful. I said, okay, what do you suggest? He said, well, accounting. I said, are you sure? Accounting? <laughs> yes, accounting. This is the, probably the most. You don't need to help explain this one to me. <laughs> yeah, this is probably the most unsexy thing that a person can study. They're like, no, 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 no. Yeah. If you study accounting and you get your CPA, you have an understanding of the financial backbone of organizations, which lies in the financial statements and reporting. And then when you go to law school, mm. you understand the rule of law. And when you combine these two together, you become a powerhouse. And that's exactly what I did. I got my accounting degree, got my CPA, got my law degree and then came out into the world and it was 06 real estate crash and then it was an 08 financial crash it was a terrible economy i didn't know what to do i looked for jobs in dc metropolitan area one in four person is a lawyer so it's not like they have a shortage or anything um, <laughs> i ended up getting a job as a tax you had to different you had to differentiate yourself 100 percent I ended up just out of desperation getting a job as a tax attorney working for a large insurance company based in, in the DC metropolitan area. And I got to tell you, although I'm very grateful that it provided sustenance at the time, I was dying. There was no creativity. There was no innovation. There was no, they just, I wanted something more entrepreneurial. So you know what I did? I said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to network. I'm going to go out to every happy hour in the DC metropolitan area, because DC happy hours where you meet people. That's, that's the spot. It's like the culture. It's like the culture. Everybody comes out of, of their offices and they go to happy hour and you meet people. 
I did it for six months. I didn't meet anybody until one day I met a gentleman. And he said, I love the fact that you're a lawyer, you're a CPA, we need you. We are a small private equity firm that incubates and grows tech companies. Would you be interested in joining us? And I said, most definitely sign me up. Sounds, sounds interesting. Yeah. Sounds interesting. So I interviewed, got the job, was them with them for several, several years. And that's where I learned the language of tech. I learned not only the language of tech, I learned how to work with developers and programmers and domestic and international. And most importantly, I learned how to work with Gen Zers, which is an interesting language in itself. Okay. So a couple reflections I have on this that I want to dig into that I think will be relevant to really anyone listening, but I also think for, as HR and talent leaders listen and think about this. So one of the things you brought up was you had this person say, I think you should study accounting. Okay. And there's a couple things I picked up on how that went, but this inevitably is something that organizations, people managers deal with all the time where they see things in their people and they see opportunities and they go, I think what you need to do is this, and it may not make sense, just like it didn't to you in the morning, you're like, what, like that? And it's really hard. I think about when you, when you think about development and getting people to develop new skills, whether it's new skills, whether it's going to the gym and trying to bench 225, it doesn't happen because one day you wake up and go, I think I'm gonna do this, and then the next day you did it, yeah. type of a thing. What was it about that? that made you see past the initial, I don't see any value in this and I'm just going to write this off because I think there's something really important in that because helping people through that, sometimes it's about how do you actually get them to see what they can't see? I think for me, it goes back to finding really good mentors, but wholeheartedly trusting in those mentors. Good mentorship can really change the trajectory of people's lives. And I've been very fortunate in my life to have incredible mentors. I, I trusted him wholeheartedly and, and he changed my life completely. It set me in a direction that, that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. Okay. So, well, and I think that's something that I would say as a talent leader in organizations, a lot of times, a lot of this effort goes into, well, let's, Let's get them, and I just think of your path. Somebody could have said, here, take this accounting class. And minus that relationship with someone who understood you and knew you and knew what was important to you, that you might have just gone, nah. <laughs> or you might have just passed on it, which might have completely changed the trajectory of your future. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about as leaders, as we think about leaders, the important role that we play in the people that we're shepherding like that in obviously these people and the mentors that you had and the leaders, they poured into you, but they also got to know who you were as an individual and what mattered to you versus just going, here's what I want you to do, but really here's where I see you going based on what I know about you. Is that fair? 100%. I'll share a story with you, a quick story that I think hits exactly on, on the point that you're trying to make. So I several years ago, I hired an incredible paralegal. I interviewed her. She was brilliant. I literally hired her on the spot. I said, you need to work for me. About a year that she worked for me, I, I asked her, I said, look, you're so good. You're amazing. You have an analytical mind. Why didn't you ever go to law school? She said, well, when I was 13 years old, I lost my mother to breast cancer. My father was so busy with work and he was so nonchalant about things that I never really had that sort of uh, leadership and mentorship. And plus now it's too late and it's cost too much mm -hmm. and it's just not going to happen. She was 27, 28 years old at the time. I said, can I ask you a question? She said, sure. I said, where was your father born? She said, my father was born in some town, small town in California. I said, where was your grandfather born? My grandfather was born in a small town in Pennsylvania. So I said, you guys are like German Dutch. She's like, how'd you know that? I said, just work with me here. <laughs> I said, where was your great grandfather born? 
Great grandfather was born in a small town in Germany. What year did he come to the United States? In the late 1800s, 1880 something. I said, let me get this straight. You're telling me that your great great grandfather got on a wooden boat, a boat made of wood, <laughs> trekked one of the most treacherous oceans. Treacherous. Of yeah. Treacherous <laughs> oceans on the face of the earth, which is the Atlantic Ocean came to a brand new country where he didn't know the language, learned the language, earned a living, had a child who had a child who had a child, which is you, and you can't go to law school part-time? She took the LSAT. She got into law school with a scholarship. She finishes next year. She becomes the first lawyer in her family. She, going back to your point, trusted in me because she knew the journey that I went through. She saw that. She was privy to that and believed in me as a mentor. And I think even you sharing that story speaks to a leadership quality that comes to that is the trust that she obviously had in you, that what you were telling her wasn't, was truly motivated by seeing the best in her and wanting to push her to a level that she didn't even see in herself 100%. and say, I see something in you that you actually don't see in yourself. And while, because what I was going to ask just as a discussion point on the end of this is for you personally, there is that balancing act as a leader of knowing when to push and knowing when not to push. Because there are times where you can, with the best intentions, push and it can be damaging if you're not careful. Yes, absolutely. People are more capable than they themselves know. Not what other yeah. people expect them. They themselves, people are much more capable. But because of external sort. Uh, uh, sort of elements and such, it limits our thought process of what we can actually achieve. It takes good leadership to exactly to your point, identify areas of improvement and that potential, but expose them to an extent that it doesn't break them. Because yeah. when, when, when you grow, it's exactly like you said earlier, it's like the gym, you go to the gym, if you start doing 300 reps on your first day of you're going to tear your muscle. So you got Right. You will actually hurt yourself. You will hurt yourself. Little by little, the leader has to expose the person so that the muscle gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And then they get to the point that they're actually on their own and they're, they're sort of growing. Um, that's leadership, in my opinion. Well, and I think going back to, because some of the conversations, especially right now, as artificial intelligence is coming onto the space and everybody's wondering like, well, can, what can machines do and what can machines not type of a thing. But some of these things that you're talking about is where, as I look at it, great leadership is uniquely positioned to thrive in the future that's ahead of us. If we do it right on some of these things we're talking about, which even just the stories you shared you couldn't have had that and you wouldn't know how far we're using this gym analogy again, but that individual that you pushed who ultimately went to law school and crushed it, you wouldn't have known whether you were tearing the muscle fiber in a positive way, or you were tearing a ligament by over overstraining it. Had you not taken the time to get to know them and where they were and all of that so that that exposure to, Hey, here's a development opportunity for you wasn't met with this isn't this is too much it's pushing me past the breaking point and everyone i'm sure she had her stories as to why she believed this self-persistent belief of like i can't do all this and everybody right now i did a youtube video about this last week i think on the fact everybody is carrying some sort of baggage yeah. along with them that to your point they may not even be aware they're carrying it totally absolutely I see AI as a tool. I see it as, a, as an incredible leap in human technological innovation, and I see it as a tool. But I also think that what AI will do when it's finally implemented to the point that it, it becomes uh, embedded with our lives without us even knowing it, it will reawaken humanity's need to connect to humanity. It will reawaken the need that we as human beings must be around other human beings, must interact with other human beings, and the importance of that, not only from a social standpoint, from a creative standpoint, 
from a humanistic standpoint, is absolutely necessary. But going back to what you said with respect to, you know, the condition, the human condition of different people, I was at a home improvement store. You have a 50-50% chance of guessing which one it is. I mean, there's two, mm. two, <laughs> two, two major ones. Orange or blue? Which one was it, Arash? Let's just say it, it was more towards the orangish tint, if you will. So I, I went up to return a product. And before I went up to the line, I, I, I greeted the person. I said, hi, how are you? And it was as if I was being uh, welcomed by my prison warden or something like that. And she, she was very, very uh, cold. And, and without me jumping to the conclusions as to, well, I'm the customer. Why is this happening? How can she do this to me? Da, 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 da. I put myself in her shoes. She must be going through something. There yeah. must be some difficulties in her life. She is also a human being. She has probably family members. Maybe somebody's ill. Maybe she's ill. Who knows? I think in the end, what's really important is as technological innovation occurs, we don't forget that first we are human and we need to understand and connect to humanity. Leads to good leadership, leads to good decisions as, as sort of sovereign nations when you think about humans. And then every time that you don't, it just doesn't end well. Well, and two things on this that came to mind. One is what your conclusion that you just came to. I 100%, when we forget humanity, have occurred is when we forget about that. And I just think of a recent example I had where I was catching up with someone. Um, you know, I talked, I talked to a lot of people through LinkedIn and connect with folks and similar in that I was having this chat and you could just sense something was off and we'd had regular conversations, but something was off. And to what we've been saying about knowing how hard to press and when to press back, I just leaned in a little bit more to say, you know, is, is everything okay? Yeah. It just doesn't seem, and of course it's initially met with a, no, I'm, I'm fine. Are you sure? Cause it doesn't seem like it. And here's why. And this individual just broke down about some of the things that they were going through and profusely apologized. So sorry, I came to talk about this and we ended up, completely forgetting what the point of our original discussion was, because in that moment it was, you need to talk about what you're struggling with right now, because yeah. that right now is all consuming and you're trying to put on this good front. And I think what you really need to do is just let it out, like let out what it was and to be there in that. And I think sometimes we forget that those moments can be really uncomfortable, but you can't replace that with technology. And it is a critical component of being a leader. Most definitely. I think that the mistake that the vast majority of corporations in the United States make is that they feel that tapping into humanity and sort of understanding the human condition of their employees is a sign of weakness. That is fundamentally flawed. It is the exact opposite. When you tap into the humanity of your people, essentially what you're going to do is tap into potentials and, and, and capabilities that you never thought possible. And you have happier people. So the way that I run my department globally is, first of all, we're a flat army. There is no hierarchy. There is not me sitting on a golden throne all the way at the top, and then they have this pyramid coming down as far as magic. Everybody is on the same level and plane. Everybody from the senior lawyers to the junior lawyers to the paralegals to the admins. Everybody has a voice. The reason for that is perhaps somebody is an admin but they have 35, 40 years of experience living in 20 different countries. I want to hear what they want to say regarding something that we're dealing with. You connect to humanity. You create an environment that people are happy, that they feel safe. They can express their views and opinions. And, and it takes a leader that can put away the ego. Ego is, is the number one downfall of most sort of leadership that I see in corporate America. Yeah. Is I, I'm in this position as general counsel, so whatever that comes out of my mouth has to be absolutely correct and the best thing. That is, yeah. Well, how is that possible? That, that can't be possible. Well, and it's tapping into that human experience and the dignity and respect that everyone, regardless of their position, brings with them life experience that contributes to the conversation in its own unique way.
Yeah, absolutely. Two, two things. Um, what, so the first one is your comment about artificial intelligence. And I am optimistic, like you said, that as this continues to advance, it is going to push us to recognize the importance of our humanity, much like the pandemic did in some ways. All of a sudden, when people were isolated and people had to reevaluate relationships, suddenly it was like, whoa, this, I need something deeper here. I, I will say I'm concerned that AI will present an artificial substitute for something that runs the risk of people believing it can replace something that it can't. And I think going back to what we said before we went live, one of my biggest concerns is the promise of an artificial replacement for something that can't be artificially replaced because we fundamentally don't understand the human experience very well. And so it's easy to just say, well, let's just substitute this with that, not realizing the implications. So I think we've got a bumpy road, but mm -hmm. I agree with you that I do think at some point, for some sooner than later, we're going to realize this actually draws us back closer to what makes us distinctly human than not. And then my other question was, you talked about how organizations sometimes make the faulty assumption that tapping into humanity it makes you weak. As a lawyer, I actually have to ask, I can also see there being a perception that tapping into humanity creates risk. And sometimes that's a reason why companies want to stamp out and tap down human experience because, you know, a machine, like it's predictable. We don't have to worry about what it might do, the type of a thing. And if we can just automate everything, then we can eliminate risk. And so as a lawyer, I have to imagine there may be times where there is pressure to say, let's squelch the humanity because it's a lot easier to mitigate risk if we don't have these darn people going around messing things up. But I'm curious, your take on that is, is the same true from risk where you say, no, actually, yes, there's risk to it, but the, the benefits far outweigh the risk or what's your take from a legal standpoint? I think um, my, my perspective on being a lawyer in the, in the modern business world is to look at it beyond just the evaluation of the risk. I think, yes, perhaps maybe there is a benefit to reduction of risk by implementing extensive copious amounts of artificial intelligence. But I think you're going to you're going to forego a tremendous amount of innovation and creative potential that comes from human beings. You know, yes, routine tasks. You can have artificial intelligence do it without question. It'll do it 24 seven. It won't complain. You'll never see the AI engine in the HR office. You never see them complaining um, yet. Uh, however, <laughs> uh, they're not creative engines. Where does creativity come from? I think creativity comes from the human condition. It comes from human emotion. And the greatest example that I can, I can share is probably the creation of rock and roll. So rock and roll- Seems relevant, working at Fender. <laughs> absolutely, just to be on the topic. So rock and roll is the birth child of the Mississippi Delta blues, which is the music of the freed African-American slaves in the South. When it was combined with the music of Ulster, Ulster is the region of Scotland and Ireland. These are the individuals that were subjected to religious persecution and, and potato famine and such, and they immigrated to North America and the United States particularly, and they settled down the Appalachian mountain until they got to the South, and they brought with them the fiddle, the European fiddle in music, and they brought with them limerick, which is poetry of, of Ireland and Scotland. When that met the music of the Mississippi Delta, it gave birth to rock and roll. Now, think about how many millions and millions of things had to occur in human history for these two genres to come together and create this genre of music. You had to have slavery. You had to have potato famine. You had to have religious persecutions in Europe. You had to have settlements. You had to have construction of the ships and then everybody come to the new world and somehow, some way, slavery becomes abolished and then this new form of music sort of gets created and such. Imagine if there's a technology that can simulate the potential combination of different sets of 
music and human experiences to create new genres of music that we never thought possible. And not only simulates that, simulates it in seconds as opposed to a thousand years. That's the potential. However, this is the number one question I always get. Well, would AI replace song creation and music creation? And so no, it will not. Because the greatest art comes from human beings and our human emotions, pain, suffering, love, fear, happiness. Machines can't experience that. They don't know that. That comes from humanity. So that's why I'm optimistic on humanity for the future. Yeah. Well, and even on that point, um, like any product, I was in a discussion the other day with a business leader on this and we were talking about product. And the thing with product is, a product is only good as the audience that consumes it. Yeah. And so you look at creativity and, and I know there's plenty of examples of people who go, well, AI can create. And it's like, maybe, but is the product it creates, does it resonate right. with someone? And I just even think of music. Oftentimes music is a good example. Often the pain and the suffering or whatever that that comes from, the reason it's so meaningful is people can sense and feel that own in their own human experience and relate to it. And so if it's coming from a place of, it didn't come from that real experience, will the audience even receive it in the same way? And I think that's where some of this stuff is going to get really absolutely deep, really you quick. Look, you look at Vincent van Gogh, particularly unhappy person, Jackson Pollock, particularly unhappy person, these were not people that woke up every morning and did Peloton. The, these were people that were part of the human struggle and, and that translated into their art. AI can, can't do that. Now, can it accelerate as a tool sure. our ability? Absolutely, it can accelerate it. You know, you, yeah. look at, look at, you look at the guitar itself, origins of it in, in ancient Persia went into Arabia, found its way into Spain, became the guitar, came to the new world and, and eventually became the electric guitar. Can you imagine the millions and billions of things that had to occur for that to happen? Can AI potentially create new instruments and new sounds we never thought possible? 100% without question. Yeah. Well, and what's funny about that and what we're talking about here, not funny, haha, but is in many ways some of the things we're even hitting on, whether it's leadership, whether it's any of these things, is the paradoxical nature of some of these things where you talk about something of great beauty and something of great tragedy in the same sentence. And it seems like a paradox. It yeah. seems like a contradiction. And yet that's what makes it so deeply meaningful is the fact that in many ways it is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It is the human condition. So I want to transition this to your journey on the lawyer front, because I think this is something that as companies right now are struggling with figuring out where do we go from here and all these different things. So I think of your experience as a lawyer. Not many lawyers I know, and I know a decent amount, not a ton, but a decent amount. Many don't share <laughs> your perspective on law and the way to approach it and to almost embrace the beauty and complexity of what the law really is and how we apply it in some of these things. And it can become very robotic, yeah. like any profession. How have you fought against that in a way that obviously has still allowed you to have career success, but also preserving the uniqueness of your perspective on this and not, because I think sometimes I just think as a development leader, sometimes employees struggle with feeling like I maybe want to bring more of my creativity and my innovation and challenge the status quo into the light. But I feel like whenever I do, I get curb stomped and then people end up relenting back to, I'll just go with the narrative. And clearly you're an example of someone who said, I'm not going to do that. 100%. I think that the, the legal world, particularly the legal world that, that works within organizations, whether it's Fender, Microsoft, Google, whatever it may be, it's ripe for disruption. It's time for a change. I have this concept called Lawyer 
it embodies sort of my, my notion that today's modern lawyer, corporate lawyer, has to embody multiple factors to be successful. Number one, they have to be technologically savvy. I don't mean that they need to be able to code. I mean that they have to understand where today's technology is and where the emerging technology is coming from. How can you potentially be an effective attorney if you don't understand where the world of technology is going as far as Web 3.0, blockchain, metaverse, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and these types of things, number one. Number two, social intelligence. The ability to be read the room and the ability to engage with humans on a level that, that allows you to be more successful than just a typical legal advisor. Because in, yeah. in the end, behind every law or behind every legal issue, what is there? It's a human being. Behind every merger, behind every person. a person. It's a person. So if you cannot connect to human beings, how can you be successful as, as a legal? You're, you're not going to be that successful. Emotional intelligence, the ability to connect to the heart of the various people. People think that this just means having empathy for your employees and such. No. Uh, it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. <laughs> you're negotiating with a government institution. There's a person behind there. You connect to what makes them human you're going to resolve issues that you never thought that you could resolve. Emotional intelligence, the ability to connect to the soul of human beings is absolutely critical. Understanding a mental wellness, understanding that it's important that we as people come to work in an environment that is healthy, that is happy, that is safe, that you just don't overlook that as, oh, yes, no, that's last on the totem pole or Maslow's hierarchy. No, that is number one. You need to have an environment that, that supports mental health. It's absolutely important. Globalization. Do you have an understanding yeah. of where the world has, has gone in the past 30 years? Do you understand that many of the emerging countries of 30 years ago that you never thought could, could achieve what they've achieved, have achieved it, including China, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates and such. You have to understand that it is no longer us and the rest of the world. We are an interconnected global ecosystem. So this is ultimately what I believe makes up Lawyer 3.0. Okay. So what's interesting about everything you just described, I want to hit on a couple of them, but first to the learning and talent leaders and HR leaders that hear this, my take on what you just described is everything you just described right there is not specific to lawyers. No. It's, this is the next generation of what the workforce mm -hmm. needs to upskill in. Mm -hmm. I mean, every single thing you hit on right there, there's not a job on the planet that I think obviously varying degrees, obviously different applications of how you may need to apply those different things and the situations in which you may need to exercise them. Absolutely, there's a functional nuance, there's a thing like that. But I think in many ways, what you're describing right now is what so many companies are wrestling with is the fact that we are almost, we are on the press, not almost, we are on the precipice of companies having to rethink and employees having to rethink what does it mean to be an effective employee? Mm -hmm. And it looks different than it did before. There are similar flavors. There are similar veins. The things that you just described, yes, there was an important element of all of those in the past, but the application and the way those things are exercised in 2023 and beyond, it's night and day. 100%. I think the pandemic changed a lot of things Prior to the pandemic, there was a general sort of um, underlying tension that existed in corporate America. The pandemic sort of blew it out out of the water. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I think <laughs> corporate America needs to adapt and change and adapt and change very, very quickly because there's far more workers out there than there are corporations. And if they cannot sort of evolve into the next realm of what will allow employees to be successful in what they will what they're doing then what you're going to have is a massive exodus and you've seen it with the great resignation and such 
Now, what do I sort of foresee as, as a way of, of achieving that? Pay attention to your people. What, what, why would they want to work for you? Why do they want to work for them? What do they want for themselves? What is the vision that they have for themselves? Is their vision to work for you for the rest of their career? Probably not. So for the period of time that they're with you, what, is, what point are they at right now? What point are they trying to get to? And, and help them achieve that. Like for me, yeah. if my people ultimately stay with me for a couple of years and get recruited out and go somewhere else, I'm immensely proud of that because they're my alumni, because they were under my umbrella. And I'm proud for them to go out and, and do incredible things and such. But I have to tap into what the vision is for themselves. During my interviews that I, that I conduct of people that I want to hire, I always ask them, what do you want for yourself? And when they don't have an answer for that, that means that they, they, they don't know where they're going. It's like a ship in the middle of the night. You have no direction. Well, what, what the heck? Where am I going? Yeah. What's the destination? So, so with that, because similarly, and I know we've gotten to know each other over the past few months, some of these things can seem counterintuitive to a leader. So if there's leaders listening to this, Again, they can sound contradictory. I have a similar philosophy and I'm very open with my teams and always have been that I've said my vision for my teams are I want every company on the planet trying to recruit you out of my team. Mm -hmm. And if you're still here, I want it to be because you want to be here. 100%. And if you choose that you want to go somewhere else, I want you to know I will celebrate your next move as much as you do. Definitely. And there are times when leaders look at that and go, but then all your people are going to leave. Like you're basically setting the table that they're going to leave. And my experience has been no. And actually when they do leave, it is a celebration. And normally they either come back or they recommend the next person, or you have such a healthy, thriving culture that people are dying to be part of that group. So it seems like a contradiction, but I'm curious for you as you, I have no doubt over the years, you've probably run into some of the similar challenges I have, where through your own experience, you've seen some of these seemingly contradictory things as a leader. Mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't care about them as a whole person. This is work. You need to just focus on the work. And it's like, but if they're not well as a whole person, they're not well at work. And so my job as a leader is to care about them as a whole person so they can be the best version of themselves at work. Some of these seemingly things that historically have been, that's not it. And that's not the employer value proposition. Mm -hmm. You come, we give you a check, you go home and that's your business. How have you navigated helping influence and shape some of that? Because that's, it's not easy. No, it is not easy. It's a two way street. The, the employee themselves have to want a, the desire to be able to grow. They have to have True. a vision for themselves. So the, you have to have that. You cannot take an employee that is completely disconnected, checked out, and, and, and completely uh, uh, sort of abrasive to all notions of what corporate America is. It's not going to work. So you need to have the want and desire on the part of the employee. On the other side, you need to have leadership that can spend the time and invest the time to be able to help that employee achieve what the vision is that they have of themselves. And when the, if their vision is just, doesn't reconcile with the vision of what the organization has, the leader's role is to help them sort of revise that vision. It's a two-way street. When you yeah. do that, you will have a perfect, fantastic equilibrium that allows the employee to benefit, the, the department to benefit, and the company to benefit. You need all the players sort of in, in equal harmony in order to make it, make it work. I've had individuals that, that came in and could not appreciate the fact of the flat hierarchy. They just couldn't. They're like, how can I be on the same level as, as a paralegal? It's like, well, you are. I mean, that's just the bottom line. You're compensated differently, but, but it's just, it is what the, I can't do that. So they can't do it. And there's other employees that come in and they just don't have a vision for where they want to be in the future and such. But I've had incredible people that came in at point A and I got them to point Z and it's beautiful. It's fantastic. It's, it's like art. Um, it is. 
It is. It's and it's something if you're a leader and you haven't experienced it, there's a beauty to it that I don't know that maybe music can describe it, right? Going back to maybe you and I, Arash, need to write a song. You can pull some of the you know famous people that through Fender and we'll get some musicians to write a song because I agree with you. There is a fantastic symphony that happens mm. when this stuff works right. And what I love about what you said on this, and I think this is an encouragement to leaders, individual contributors, and those responsible for growing and developing leaders and individual contributors is there is this shared responsibility with this. And it's about finding that equilibrium that comes with this because similarly, I've had employees over the years that no matter how much you create that, they just, it's not there and they right. burn up in the atmosphere and yep. you go. And as a leader, you have to know that's going to happen. There are going to be some people as a leader that no matter how hard you try, that equilibrium's off and you have to be able to accept that and not take that as I'm failing as a leader. And sometimes that's an emotional burden to carry. But I think also as an individual contributor, you have to recognize the responsibility and the role you play in that. And you can't just wait on your leader to fix this for you. But, you know, and, I, and I've just seen over the years, having spent my whole career in this space, companies swing the pendulum from, well, you own your career, it's all on you, to, well, it's the company or your boss's job to grow your career. And, and neither works. Yep. Neither Absolutely. works. You have to find that middle ground. Absolutely. You know, Fender is probably one of the few remaining companies that actually manufactures by hand its products in the United States. For the most part, most manufacturing has, has left the United States. Yeah. When you take a look at that, this conversation that we're having becomes particularly important and significant because as the United States transitions fully into more of a service-based, informational-based economy, these types of considerations become absolutely key. It is our competitive advantage if we can embrace them. And it becomes our downfall if we cannot. I think right now you have a significant amount and a percentage of the workforce that is just questioning the fact of why the heck are we working? <laughs> that's a what am I doing? What yeah. am I doing right now? That's a, that's a problem. That that's a, if your workforce, that's an that, existential crisis that absolutely. has to be addressed. So we need to address this. We need to, we need to sort of stop and think, and it's important to make the quarterly numbers. It's important to, to make sure the stock stays up and such. But if we can't answer this question, we're going to have a, we're going to have a problem, a significant problem, because manufacturing is gone. So many of the routine tasks are leaving. They're gone. Most of the back office accounting functions and accounts receivable, payable, et cetera, data entry, gone overseas. We need to connect to humanity and figure this out. Yeah. Well, and I think this is what you're hitting on is something that I was on a call the other day talking about something else related to operations. And one of the challenges that I think organizations have to face with what you just said is there is this tension. And this goes back to the beauty of paradox of human existence, which is you have to keep moving forward as an organization. And you can't just say, stop the trains, everything stop. We just need to pause and reflect and figure this out. Yet at the same time, the tendency is to just go, we're just going to activity our way through this. We're just going to keep pushing forward and eventually it'll figure itself out. And that can come with catastrophic fallout because even going back to what we said earlier about what's going on with AI, there are some things, and I see this a lot in my field, where people are struggling with the existential crisis of, what does it mean to even do my job anymore in an AI world? And we have to help. Again, there's a mutual piece, but we have to help them see what that future looks like. And some of the skills you described in Lawyer 3.0, what does it mean to bring that to work and apply that in a distinctly unique way that differentiates you as a professional and also contributes to something bigger and something more meaningful that the company is trying to accomplish? And you have to be intentional as an organization to invest time and energy into that and make that a priority, not just a, well, 
we'll get to it or we'll, we'll it'll figure itself out because it won't. No, it will not. And most definitely, I agree with you. Companies have to do it. When you see emerging China emerging in the world, um, ultimately, when you have a country like China that can manufacture basically everything that, that, that can supply the world, they will get to the stage where they will face the same issues that we're facing right now. The yep. issue that the world faces is a, is a growing middle class. A middle class is going to demand a lot more personal sort of rights and attentions and things of that nature. It's inevitable. Every middle class sort of demands that. If we can figure this out at this stage, we will continue to have a competitive advantage over our competitors, primarily China and other countries and such. If we don't, then fundamentally we're going to have a massive, massive crisis. And, and it can start in your department. It doesn't need to start at the national level or at the largest no. organization. It can start in your department. Because I love your, that. Your department can impact other departments that impacts other departments that impacts other corporations. And then you have thought leadership like this and awakens people's ideas as to, oh my God, so there are lawyers that actually can connect to humanity. <laughs> yes, we are not a, all, you know, the butt of all jokes and robots. No. And guess what? What's amazing for me is the fact that because I tapped into those unfamiliar soft skills, it has allowed me to be far more successful than I would have had if I didn't. That's the secret. Yeah. That's the ultimate secret is it allows you to be more successful and you can still it be does. a good person and people, people enjoy being with you. Yeah. Yeah. Leaning into the fray is something that, is such an important thing right now. And what's funny is you sharing the story of Fender. I think, again, it's just one of those things where the hard work ahead of this, where we have, you know, in the age of TikTok and Twitter, where we can try and simplify everything into a tweet, it's not helping recognize things are far more nuanced and complex. And we have to lean into that complexity and lean into that ambiguity and go, there's a lot more here than we really need to do. And we have to deconstruct that so we can reconstruct something better. Definitely. And I think sometimes that's what we see is let's tear down the establishment. And it's like, well, are there elements that need to be torn down, but they should be torn down with the purpose of rebuilding something better. Cause I have no, I have no doubt that at some point in the history of Fender, someone probably said we could probably have these things manufactured somewhere else by a machine for a whole lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. But it took the hard decision and the deeper conversations of there is something distinctly unique about that and our brand and our product that if we sacrifice there, it will have existential consequences elsewhere. And figuring out what those things are, that doesn't come by a quick SWOT analysis or throwing AI on a bunch of your numbers and going, so what decisions should we make? Right. And I think that's the challenge, but the beauty of what we have ahead of us. Absolutely. The three guitars that you see behind me, uh, they're exactly the same model, but because, with the exception of one, one is Telecaster, two is Stratocaster. Uh, they're different because every single guitar has a minute sort of difference between the other guitar because it's made by hand. That in itself adds a level of the human touch and the human fingerprint that is so beautiful and forever it'll be embodied in this instrument as long as it's... Right. There is only one of those. Exactly. <laughs> There's only Absolutely. one. For sure. Although they look exactly the same, they're not exactly the same. It is impossible that they're exactly the same. I, th I think that kind of brings back our whole conversation, which is... <laughs> yeah. The human, the human element is absolutely key. Whether you are a general counsel, whether you're a CEO, whether you're an entrepreneur, or whether you're the head of a government, whether you're president of the United States, it doesn't matter. Uh, in the end, we're all humans. So connect to humanity. Yeah. I, I couldn't end that on a better note than that. So I hope everybody who listens to this, who has been listening, who's been watching, thanks for the comments. Um, this has been a fantastic discussion and I'm so glad we had it. I've been looking forward to this for some time and I just thank you. And I hope everybody who listens took something from this, whether it's, whether it's leadership, whether it's your own personal career journey, whether it's the 
work that's ahead of you, what the future of that work looks like. There's so much from this. And so I just want to thank you for the time um, and just joining me. Thank you so much. for. All right. Well, thank you all and have a great rest of your week. We will see you back next week.